0: Welcome back to On the Record, I'm Sheila Cast. At its peak in the late 1800s, the Chesapeake Bay produced more oysters than almost anywhere else in the world. But in the 20th century, the bay's oyster populations plummeted to a tiny fraction of what they had been. In 2018, a Maryland Department of Natural Resources assessment found the oyster population had shrunk in half in less than 20 years, And the decline over the long term is even more stark. The DNR estimated that in Maryland's portion of the bay, oysters numbered less than 10% of the population harvested each year before 1900. But it's not all doom and gloom. We come bearing good news for our saltwater mollusk neighbors. Last October, Governor Westmore announced that Maryland and its partners would plant more than one7 Billion new juvenile oysters, a new one year record for oyster planting in the Chesapeake Bay. The new oysters are primarily grown at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Sciences Horn Point Laboratory in Cambridge. Matthew Gray is an assistant professor at that laboratory. When I spoke to him in October, I asked him about oysters' role as filters in the bay and what effect they have on water quality.
1: So, oysters. They inhale large volumes of water, and they clear particulate matter from the water column, and this improves water clarity and water quality. And this is important not only for oysters, but for a range of economically and commercially valuable species, or rather ecologically and commercially valuable species.
0: Another potential benefit, as I understand it, is oysters' ability to sequester carbon. Can something so small really make a crack in global emission levels?
1: uh so that's a matter of debate you know these are living breathing animals and so they're actually making co2 just like you and i do when we breathe and additionally when they make shell that the process of making shell also contributes co2 to the surrounding water and they also remove alkalinity from the seawater as they make shell so it there's really a debate that needs to be had about their role as as uh, sequestering carbon, if it's a really net benefit or not, they certainly do improve nutrient levels in the bay because they can filter out nutrients by taking up that those uh, those algae and uh, absorbing those nutrients, which is a probably and arguably a, a bigger threat to the bay than carbon right at this time.
0: Well, what do you as an as someone who studies these oysters, what what do you consider their their biggest benefit to Chesapeake Bay?
1: you know, it's hard to say, but I think the habitat value is is unmatched by any other species in the Bay. So they create reefs. And just the structure that that reef provides in the Bay contributes um, immense value to a lot of other species like crabs and all sorts of fish um, that either use it as nursery grounds or to hide, hide from predators. So it makes for, for really uh, lush habitat for a variety of species. That, I would argue, is their greatest service that they're contributing.
0: This this recent milestone, this planting milestone, means the state has planted more than 7 billion oysters since launching restoration efforts in 2014. Describe the process here. How does the hatchery grow so many oysters?
1: It starts by going into the bay, actually, and bringing back broodstock, which are adult oysters. They are conditioned here at Horn Point Laboratory, and that means that in in, uh, January or February, we start warming the waters and kind of tricking them into thinking that it's early spring. And that kind of turns on their reproductive side of their bodies, if you will. Um, And then after they kind of condition up and they ripen, then they're able to produce gametes, eggs and sperm. And uh, then we induce spawning. So we kind of shock them with by exposing them to high water temperature, elevated water temperature. And then that kind of stresses them out a little bit and it causes them to start uh, releasing their gametes. So then we collect sperm and egg, we mix those, and then we fertilize eggs. Those fertilized eggs go go into tanks. Essentially those uh, eggs turn into larvae. Those larvae are fed algae. And after about two weeks, out pops what's called a petivelliger. It means it's a little tiny oyster with a little foot. And if it has that foot, it's looking around to settle on something. So we take that pediveliger and we take it out to our setting period, which is right on the Chop Tank River, and we throw it in with some shell and then those pediveligers settle on the shell that's waiting for it. So when those when those larvae attach to the uh, shell, it's, they, they transform into what's called spat. And then we have spat on shell. And it's that spat on shell that we put out in the bay and kind of that's the last time we kind of touch it. And uh, Mother Nature does the rest.
0: That's Matt Gray. He's a faculty member in the Horn Point Laboratory at University of Maryland's Center for Environmental Science, where he studies the restoration of oyster habitats. Here on The Record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about the restoration of oyster populations in the Chesapeake Bay. I have the impression that there's a
1: boom in oyster production this year. What What is behind that? So we're not exactly sure, but we just think that conditions in the Bay are kind of just right. So we've had a a particularly salty year. Where we're at in the Bay, we're kind of at the lower limits for oysters um, in the Bay in terms of saltiness. So if you go further up the Bay, the, the water gets too fresh and oysters have a tough time reproducing, spawning, and thriving. But where we're at, we're in the mesohaline. So we're at 10 to 12 parts per thousand. And this year we were up to 16. At times. And that doesn't sound like a big difference, but that certainly seemed to play a, a big role in enabling the hatchery to produce a lot of larvae, the most larvae they've ever produced in a single season. And that makes for good uh, oyster making and getting more spat in the bay and um, helping those restoration activities succeed.
0: Which sounds different than this, the situation in the latter decades of the 20th century when oyster populations took a, a huge hit. What was behind that decline, and what lessons does it give us for current restoration efforts?
1: Yeah. Well, so, you know, we had the peak harvest in the late 1800s, and um, there was definitely overfishing that occurred into the 20th century. Then there was a period of rather long-term stability, which happened between the 40s and, say, the 70s. And then kind of at the end of that era, you know, we had two big diseases that really came in and rocked the uh, fisheries, the oyster fishery. And then so after about uh, the mid 80s or late 80s, oysters have been at a fraction of what they were historically in terms of abundance. And they've kind of just hung out at that pretty low period. We're talking about less than 1% of their historic biomass. And you know you could probably draw a direct line for um, You know, recent upticks in uh, spat fall and and catches and landings to changes in management decisions and how oysters are managed at a state level in Maryland. And this is due to changes in aquaculture regulations and also kind of more science based management of the fishery, as well as the the development of the restoration areas. So we had sanctuaries, but we expanded the sanctuaries. and are now conducting the world's largest restoration, oyster restoration efforts. And I think there's good reason to believe that this is bleeding over into the fishery and that over time, we're going to see a lot more oyster production in the Bay and a lot more Bay health in terms of oyster habitat and um, maybe some production of other species that are benefiting from these activities.
0: Well, yeah, I mean... I. It's certainly an accomplishment to plant billions of oysters, but it's another thing to keep them alive. What What is needed to ensure these newly replenished oyster populations are able to persist and grow?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. We, you know, we're in, the Bay is going to do all the work essentially for us. And as long as there aren't any huge uh, disturbances, the oysters are pretty robust against Short term fluctuations in, in water quality or environmental conditions. So, if, if they're left alone and allowed to grow, restored oyster populations should do fine and grow on their own. That being said, severe weather events that bring in massive silt loads can have, be a really big problem for oysters, especially young juvenile oil, oysters like those spat. Um, it can, big sediment loads can prevent. Larvae from finding shell and attaching to it. that could be if those if those events coincide when larvae in the water and we get a big rain and sediment loads, that could be that could be pretty disastrous for what we call young of the year and recruitment. But I think basically, uh, as long as we kind of just leave them alone and we have normal years, these oysters really should be fine.
0: Matt, what's the biggest risk to the Bay doing its work, especially given rising air temperatures and I assume rising water
1: temperatures too? So you're hinting at climate change, and that certainly is a potential threat that is on the horizon. In some ways, oysters might do well because uh, it would mean a greater intrusion of saltwater, which would do oysters, which it should expand their habitat in some ways in, in the Bay. On the other hand, if seawater temperatures get too high, we could start uh, stressing out oysters. And where we do see some signs of that already occurring, where during the hottest parts of the year uh, in my laboratory, we see oyster filtration rates start to dip. And that's an indication that they're becoming stressed. So, so sea surface temperature is something that we uh, should be concerned about. And it's unclear if oysters will be able to adapt to that shift. And if they can't, that Poses some really challenging problems for us in terms of how do we, how do these oyster populations adapt and how do we adapt as coastal residents who rely on these resources? Matt, thanks for explaining this to us. Oh, yeah, my pleasure.
0: Matthew Gray is an assistant professor in the Horn Point Laboratory at the University of Maryland's Center for Environmental Science, where he studies oysters and their habitats. You can find out more about oysters and the work to restore their numbers at the On The Record page at WYPR.org. I'm Sheila Cast. glad you're with us on The Record. Come back tomorrow.